This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, Hawke's Bay's community access radio station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, nā mihi nui. My name is Liz Remiswell and I'm in Hawke's Bay, Aotearoa, New Zealand and the latest edition of Peace Witness. We have the wonderful Kathy Kelly coming from Chicago who is the new president of World Beyond War. Welcome, Kathy. Well, Liz, thank you for the invitation and thank you for always hosting Peace Witness. Thank you. And a little bit about you, Kathy. You are an American pacifist, author, and board president of World Beyond War, as I mentioned, and you believe that war is never the answer. But of your history, in 1988, you planted corn on an ICBM site in Missouri, earning you a year in prison, and with many imprisonments for civil disobedience to follow. In 1996, you began carrying medical supplies into Iraq, which was a violation of U.S. sanctions. And you were in Iraq during the subsequent U.S. war and experienced being underneath exploding U.S. bombs there and in Gaza in 2008. Since 2010, you've been a frequent visitor to Afghanistan, working with poor children and widows. And you write and speak continuously with emphasis on Afghanistan, Gaza, Yemen, and now Ukraine, insisting that creative nonviolence can really change the world. So that's a pretty amazing and impressive, it's basically your whole life work, Kathy. Hmm. Well, you know, Ammon Hennessy was with the Catholic Worker Movement, and he once quipped, he said, you can't be a pacifist between wars any more than you can be a vegetarian between meals. And so I don't think I could say I'm an absolute pacifist because I don't think any of us ever knows absolutely how we would handle a crisis. But I can say that I've been so fortunate to have been with communities that have really tried to not just abolish this war or that war, but be against all war. And I think, you know, where you stand determines what you see. And when, when, you, when you've stood with people in war zones, it, it does change your view, I think, for many people forever. Well, it sounds like you've also been in some pretty scary situations. I mean, being underneath U.S. bombs raining down on you in, in Iraq and Gaza, that would, I would say that would be seriously scary. Hmm. Well, I wouldn't say it isn't. Of course it is. And, and that, you know, I think you can never let anybody say, oh, I don't feel any fear. Of course, people feel fear, and especially the fear that mothers and fathers feel for their children when they're under heavy, heavy bombardment. It's, it's terrible. But I, I do believe that 
we catch courage from one another. And, and I think courage is the ability to control our fears, not to be controlled by our fears. And I mean, it's, it's curious to me, Liz, that sometimes I think people have more capacity for courage than they realize, but in some ways they're controlled by the fears of others who say, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't take that risk. Um, you'll, you could hurt your loved ones. They, they, they would be uh, so uh, full of dread if, if anything happened to you. So those are all big things to consider. But then I think, well, what about the people who can't escape the bombs? Or, you know, what about the people who don't have access to three meals a day, like I almost always do? Or what about the people who are imprisoned for almost the rest of their lives? And I just had a one-year experience uh, in terms of a you know, successive set of months in prison. So I, I think it's, it's so important to try to build empathy for other people. And also it's okay to build outrage about the consequences of war. And I think about that so much now because here in the United States... Oh my goodness! The the news coverage of the war in Ukraine is causing huge outrage. People are furious over the consequences, and I think that should be the standard. That should be the norm. That should be how we would respond to war in Yemen and in Iraq and in Afghanistan, and and the empathy people feel. You know, they they really are mourning for and crying with the people who are displaced and maimed and uh, so badly abused. But once again, you know, well, for instance, our president's spouse, Jill Biden, went to Ukraine on the United States Day to celebrate Mother's Day. And she embraced the mothers. And, and it built tremendous empathy for those mothers. But I think, what about, well, the mothers in Iraq Hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children died. You know, their mothers couldn't save them. They couldn't get medicines. They couldn't get, in many cases, even enough food or clean water. And then, you know, what about the children in Afghanistan? And because of U.S. policy now, it's likely that uh, two million children are at risk of death by starvation. It's a, a tortuous way to die. And then what about the children in Yemen? Uh, is right now, there's another 2 million Yemeni children who might not make it. So I think we need that empathy. We need that sense of outrage. We need that level of awareness, strong awareness, and also care for refugees that we are seeing with regard to Ukraine. So this has been a tremendous learning time in some ways, but um, I also feel that... Uh, there's a huge need to speak up about ending the war in Ukraine, not aggravating it, not prolonging it, not trying to weaken Russia as a goal of the war, but rather the number one priority ought to be negotiations and a ceasefire. And sure, then talk about rebuilding and care for refugees most certainly we could do it all in the United States. We have the budget if we go into what the Pentagon gets every year, which so far um, outpaces what the United States spends on children, poor children in our country, or on health care, 
or in education, public services. So there's so much work to be done. And yet we catch courage from one another. I really believe that. And I love World Beyond War because of that. Yeah, well, we love having you there, Kathy. And um, I mean, I always sort of feel a bit guilty. You've been arrested, um, I think, over 80, 80 times, I think you said. I guess it is, 80. Yeah. And um, I'm such a coward. <laughs> um, I always try not to get arrested <laughs> or oh, go to jail. Well, you know, there are plenty of different perspectives on that. Um, I mean, I think that the most educational year of my life was that year I spent in prison, because what did I know before then about the consequences of people going to prison? I was, I mean, the women used to, well, they used to call me missiles because I had planted corn on top of a nuclear missile silo site. <laughs> and they'd, they'd laugh and they'd say, missiles, you're nothing but a minute because you're, you're in a revolving door. You're going to be out of here in one year. But even back then, if a woman had a 10-year sentence, we were whispering about her in the courtyard. And there were so few that got those really, really long sentences. And we, we couldn't imagine how will anyone endure it. Well, now, the last time I went to prison was in 2016. And it was common for women to have seven, eight, nine, 10-year sentences. So can you imagine... At the end of a sentence like that, you know, a woman comes out stigmatized. Her family is quite often broken apart. She can't get a job. She can't vote. Uh, and, and very often the, uh, the pain of, of what a, a woman experiences makes it all the more likely that she'll once again turn to using drugs or maybe selling drugs. So it's a wicked system. But I, I am also aware that when we do civil disobedience, sometimes a result, quite honestly, is that the security systems just get beefed up more and more. And, you know, I don't want to see the bases exist. I think that they're wrongful. But we have to really keep thinking strategically. How do we dismantle these bases, dismantle the militarism and not end up being the cause for building more barbed wire fences and more gates and more jobs for people to act as guards. Um, so we really must... And the privatization of those institutions as well, which is happening. Yes, and of course the state has figured out how to punish people, um, both through heavy fines but and long um, parole um which sometimes they use the uh, ankle bracelets and they put people on monitoring and they, they make a person uh, agree to that. And so it's, it's not so, um, well, what I would say is that the persecution of activists has certainly become more diverse, I think, in many ways. We, we're never generally subjected to the long, onerous prison sentences, but... Um, young people might say, well, I'll, I'll never get a job if I have a, you know, a, a spot on my record. And, and personally, I, I always saw it as kind of a, um, a way to have earned credibility to have gone up against the system and, and to have raised my voice and spoken back at a judge and you know, told him I expected him to do his duty and fairly try this case. I thought, well, that's a good thing. I should speak up and not be afraid of a judge. But I can understand how it is now that people are feeling less likely. And I also want to say that 
There was one time when I was arrested at a place called Fort Benning, Georgia, and the search was so aggressive. I I just couldn't put up with it. The the guards were screaming, barking orders at us, and I was one of the youngest, and most of the people were nuns and priests. And you know, somebody had his hand inside my clothing, was like squeezing. I thought, well, I, I don't I shouldn't put up with this. So I started to lower my arms very quietly saying, I'm sorry, I can't cooperate with this anymore. Well, I think in seconds I was down on the ground. I had a slight black eye from the impact. My wrists were handcuffed. My ankles were handcuffed. My wrists and ankles were then handcuffed together. They call it hogtied. And a very large, like six foot two soldier, this was at a military base in the United States, was kneeling on me. And he was referring to me with an expletive, this effort and I couldn't breathe and so I I said to him excuse me but this really hurts and I can't breathe and nothing you know this person's not letting up the pressure and so I said it again I said I'm sorry but this is impossible I can't breathe nothing and then I you know got a breath And blurted out, look, I've had three lung collapses in my past, and I can't breathe. Well, that did it. I think the supervisor who was standing there with a clipboard did not want a dead pacifist on her hands. (laughs) And so the guy got up. He got off of me. And I got a full breath, and I was still hogtied. And then I was taken to the next station. And, of course, because they take the scrunchies out of your hair, the hair is in front of my face, and they can't take my picture. So the next soldier where they want to take my picture, said to me, excuse me, ma'am, but in order to take your picture, I need to move the hair from in front of your face. Will that be all right? I said, oh, sure. And Liz, he so gently moved the hair from in front of my face, and then he squeezed my shoulder. And he said, I know those cuffs are real tight, ma'am. We're going to get them off of you as soon as we can. And I thought, wow, just when you think, you know, (laughs) the curtain has come down on human kindness, there's a breakthrough. But, you know, in the recent years, as I've thought about that story, I've realized that if my skin wasn't white and I had said, I can't breathe two, three times, I might very well have been dead. And so George Floyd And so many other African-American people have taught us a great, great deal through such painful, wrongful, cruel, and wrongheaded experiences that they've had. Um, So as I say, there's so much to learn uh, and, and, and so much to unlearn about our sense of privilege. Yes, I don't know if you realize that this year's International United Nations Day of Peace The theme is End Racism, Create Peace, I believe. And um, along those lines, do you feel that um, with happening the world's response towards the Ukrainian people as opposed to those other countries where we have, there have been wars going on for quite some time, do you feel there is an element of racism in that well, Liz, it's, it's sort of hard to step away from that 
Um, you know, I think that many people in the United States identify with the people they see in Ukraine. And, you know, maybe part of it is, oh, you know, they, they, were, they wear clothes like we wear. And uh, they um, practice religious creeds that we're familiar with um, in, in the mainstream of the U.S. But I think so much of it is they look like we do. And that, that's, um, I believe, not only just inherently wrong, but also people in the United States need humility so badly. Uh, Ilhan Omar, herself a refugee from Somalia, made this very clear when um, Biden isn't now asking for a no-fly zone. But at one point, it seemed like that would be what the uh, U.S. Congress would, would press for in Ukraine. And, and that really would greatly aggravate the possibility of a nuclear annihilation. And she said, we need courage, we need foresight, and we need humility. And I think that that is both to recognize that the United States has engaged in atrocities against other countries again and again and again. And also to recognize that there are you know, plenty of other countries around the world who don't support the United States' insistence that the war in Ukraine must continue. I don't think it's that they don't care about uh, people in Ukraine, but I think that many are saying, well, you know, wars were waged against our countries or our neighboring countries, or we've been victimized by the economic sanctions or will be the major victims by the current economic sanctions. And so there's such um, suffering that will happen all around the world, but most particularly amongst the poorest people, many of whom are women and children. I'm thinking again of Yemen, you know, uh, 37% of Yemen's grains come from the combination of Ukraine, which is having a very difficult time planting and exporting crops, and Russia, whose crops and fertilizers are under sanctions. So the ramifications, the repercussions of this war will go on for a long time. And I believe it's actually in the interest of Ukrainian people to end the war. They, the Russia, Russia's military may have blundered, but they certainly have a huge, huge uh, set of soldiers and budget. And I, I don't think we're seeing much of a sign that the increased United States weaponry is um, causing Vladimir Putin to say, well, I guess I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, Kathy. Just coming back to something you said earlier, uh, and um, we actually haven't got very much time to go. Unfortunately, this has gone really quickly. But you mentioned um, the effect of getting arrested on the on people that you love, and so when you were when you were growing up or deciding to take these actions, um. How did you cope with that? Hmm. Well, you know, I just happened, I think, to be in the right place at the right time when I was a high schooler. I was, you know, impressionable, but in, I think, largely good ways. And Brother Conrad, uh, the principal of our school, uh, had a monthly program where he would show all of us high schoolers a film, often a documentary, in the afternoon, 
And then he'd invite our parents to come over and see it in the evening. And one month, the film that he chose was called Night and Fog. And it's just a heartbreaking film made by French artist historians who took their cameras into Bergen-Belsen and Dachau and Auschwitz and the camps in Europe after they had been emptied of the survivors of the Holocaust. And he filmed the remains in the camp, and it was shocking. You know, the, the film is done with classical music in the background and French subtitles, and the camera people pan in on the mounds of blankets that were made out of human hair and lampshades made from human skin. And I remember just being horrified and, and, and seeing the smokestacks that were spewing out ashes. And, and I thought that the narrator had asked, didn't they smell the burning flesh? Actually, I viewed the film uh, more recently and I made that up. It's not in the film. But I made this resolve that I would never be a bystander, uh, a passive spectator in the face of a terrible evil. So I'm in high school, right? Liz, I went through undergrad college while the Vietnam War was raging. I never went to a demonstration. I never passed out a leaflet. I never picked up the phone. I never wrote a letter to the editor. I would write papers and be very proud because, oh, I got an A on my paper about the Vietnam War. So there was this longing, but it was not being fulfilled. And then finally, I couldn't teach. I was teaching in a high school about disarmament and also about impoverishment. And I couldn't any longer talk about poverty and not encounter any of the poor people in my own city. So I found my way to a soup kitchen. I knocked on the window because that's how you got in, went down and started cutting onions and met very fine people and soon a whole community of some of the finest people in my city, really. And the grass has never looked greener ever after. I, I, I was sold. I think, you know, what happens very often is you fall in love. You just keep on falling in love with people. And some of them right now are people who have taught me about war zones because they themselves have grew up in them. You know, young people today, I'm in touch with Afghans every day trying to do the most nonviolent thing they can do in their situation, which is to run, to flee, uh, to not be a target and not target others. So um, I've been really, really fortunate. And sometimes I think my family members thought, oh, this is it. <laughs> you know, she, she does a year in prison and then she has to go peeling off and go to a war zone the, you know, a few months after she gets out and look what you're doing to mom. <laughs> but now they they understand so much better. And the one big grace in my life also was that I was able to take care of my dad for the last eight years of his life. And I think I redeemed myself with my family doing that. And also, dad changed his mind about a lot of things, including he he he's so worried for the children and families in Hiroshima and the children in Iraq. Um, so there was a lot of love there, and um, my community, my friends helped me take care of Dad. Uh, so, you know, sometimes when we think, uh-oh, you know, I'm, I've gone too far, we may just be opening the door. Yeah. Did you ever suffer from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? Uh, you know, I sometimes honestly think when I give a presentation that the 
people listening could bill, bill me for therapy. I, I think the reality of having been able to say, this is what I saw and heard, and not to bottle it up, has been important. The other thing is, my own experience was to keep a poker face. When the bombs are exploding, the children, their, their eyes are glued on the adults. And so I sort of had this resolve, I'm not going to flinch, I'm not going to scare those children. So maybe I dissociate, I don't know, but I don't think I've been burdened by post-traumatic stress. I can tell a few moments when I was very burnt out, and it was very good people, the victims of the war themselves, who got me through, including children. Well, thank you so much, Kathy, and for everything you do, and and especially for leading World Beyond War. Um, very grateful to have you, and I wish we had more time to hear your stories. Well, I only encounter the most lovely people in Christchurch, so I wish I could visit you someday, but we're very far away. We'll have to settle for Zoom at the time, but thank you, Liz. Thank you very much. This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, Hawke's Bay's community access radio station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air.